to know it, as you're in this conversation with your conversation partner, and as your brain is going into overdrive and the, the Bible mental concordance has been turned on, you feel like you're tied up into a knot. You're really not sure how to get out of this, to say anything intelligent. And so you ask, well, where do I go with all of this? You ask, well, do I need to abandon the Bible's teaching on sexuality to love others? Or do I need to abandon love in order to hold fast to the Bible's teaching on sexuality? You feel like you're tied in a knot. How do I walk this out? And I want to think about that knot that we get ourselves tied up in, this set of questions. So we start feeling anxious. We start feeling troubled. We start feeling confused. We feel that we're in a bind tied up in a knot. And I think this reveals something about us, doesn't it? At the most, I think it reveals about us that we have a corrupted understanding of love. And perhaps at the least, the least it reveals about us, it reveals that we have a not-so-firm grasp on God's love. Now, as we think about this, this shouldn't be a big surprise for us. Why? Well, this is what sin does. Sin corrupts, it spoils, it contaminates. Sin can't really make anything. It can't produce anything. All that sin can do is take what God has made, the good things that God has made, and take it and corrupt it and disfigure it, leaving it an empty shell of what it was supposed to be. And as we think about it, we see the corrupting force of sin at work in our culture, in the rainbow flag. Each one of the letters of the rainbow flag, the L, the G, the B, the T, the Q, tell the, corrupting, tell the story of the corrupting power of sin. Each one of these letters tells a sad story of spoilage. The letters tell the story of men forsaking women and women forsaking men and and men and women mutilating their own bodies to become someone or something else in a quest to fill some sort of desire in their heart. And the thing we have to understand as we think about ourselves is that the corrupting power of sin that is working in our society does not just affect bodies or identities. It just doesn't affect what people wear or the pronouns people use. It also affects the way we think. It affects our doctrine. And so the power of sin at work in our society corrupts the very way we conceive of God and the very love that is held out for us in the gospel. And surely, more than anything else, our culture has a corrupted understanding of love and what happens when we swim in this culture of corrupted love we soon start to share in the culture of corrupted love and we get confused and we get tied into these knots cs lewis in his book mere christianity has a remarkable quote on the corrupting power of sin and i think it's worth our time and so i'm going to read it he writes this the better stuff a creature is made of the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, then the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. So just sit on that for a moment. Lewis is giving us a principle to work with. He's telling us that creatures have potential. And the greater the creature, the more potential it has. That creature can, if it goes right, bring about great good. But at the same time, if that creature goes wrong, that creature will bring about great evil, trouble. Ms. Lewis wants us to understand what he's saying in this principle, and so he writes this. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be both better and worse. A child better and worse still. An ordinary man still more so. A man of genius still more so. A superhuman spirit best or worst of all. And as we think about what Lewis is saying as he's trying to help us understand this principle, it, it makes sense. 
Think about a cow. It doesn't have much potential. If it goes wrong or goes right, it doesn't really make a big difference to the world. But, but change the equation. Move from a cow and move to a political leader. The political leader has much more potential than the cow. So if the, the political leader goes, leader goes right, what happens? That political leader can bring great good to the world. And at the same time, because that political leader has such potential, if it goes wrong, if he goes wrong, great trouble to the world. And what I want to do is I want to take Lewis's principle and apply it to our thinking, to the doctrine of God's love. And so as we think about the doctrine of God's love, there is no doctrine revealed in Scripture greater than the love of God. The love of God is given the, the highest superlatives in Scripture, being praised all of the time. We find the love of God being prayed for with earnest and zealous prayers. The love of God is something of great power, immense and unfathomable power. We see it in the Scripture. It can, it can heal souls and redeem worlds and save whole masses of people. It can lift up souls and satisfy them forever. And so as we think about the doctrine of God's love, we can say this doctrine is something of the greatest potential. And so we can follow Lewis's logic. So when the doctrine of the love of God goes right, meaning that we understand it accurately and proclaim, pro, proclaim it faithfully and live it out daily, it's going to bring blessings to the world, incalculable blessings. However, the inverse is true. If the love of God goes wrong, meaning that we misunderstand the love of God and misapply the love of God and misuse the love of God, it has the power to bring about destruction in nuclear proportions. And so this is where it all connects with us. Brother, sister, if we get the doctrine of, of the love of God wrong, meaning that we misunderstand it or misapply it or misuse it, not only will we become rather useless in our culture, well, we will become an aid of the corruption in our culture. We'll become a conduit of corruption. But at the same time, there's something glorious to consider. If we get the doctrine of the love of God right meaning that we understand it and proclaim it and live it, not only will we be useful, but we might even see good, great good, incalculable blessings come into our culture through us. And so, hear this call. It's the last call of our series. The call is this. We must love those who belong and identify with the rainbow flag, and we must love them, not as the rainbow flag defines love, but as God himself defines love. So the call is very simple. We must love those who belong to the rainbow flag. And so the task this morning is rather simply, we need to understand what does it mean to love someone? We need to get our heads on straight. And so we're going to turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And as we start to look at these verses, we, we begin to see that they're a carefully argued set of verses. Each verse is linked to the next verse in a chain of argument with the result that this whole section of verses is bound up together in this web of argumentation. And my aim is to work through this argument with you. And what we will find as we work through these six verses is something like a, a set of steps. And as we follow along with John, working through this argument, climbing from step to step, what we will find is we'll get clarity and understanding about this matter of the doctrine of God's love. And as we climb these steps with John, moving through them, we will find that God himself draws near to us, and he begins to reorder our hearts about this matter of love. And so we can start climbing the steps in verse 7. Look there with me. John writes, he says, Beloved... 
let us love one another. Super simple verse. John gives us a command. What must we do? We must love one another. And in the context of John chapter 4, the focus is on the church. We must love those who have been born of God. If you've been born of God, you're going to love those born of God. But as we connect this verse to our sermon series and our cultural moment, I think it's appropriate, even wise, to widen the scope of John's command. And I don't think John would protest. Yes, we love the church first and foremost, but we also love those outside the bounds of the church. We can just go to Jesus for help here. Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we love the church, but not only the church, we love those outside of the church. We love our neighbors, whoever we come into contact. Even more, Jesus preaches to us. We, we, we love those who are unlovely. We love those who persecute us and hate us. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so Christian, here's the first step. We are obligated to love. And so we get a measure of clarity here. We're obligated to love those inside of the church and not only those inside of the church, but our neighbors and not only our neighbors, but those who hate us. And even as we expand our horizon, we're called to love those who belong to the rainbow flag. That's what Jesus tells us to do. And we must love them with our deeds and with our mouths and with our hands and from the very recesses of our hearts. That that is what the scriptures call for us. And so we find the first step in verse 7. John writes to us, he says, Beloved, Let us love one another. But John is a pastor, and pastors know that people need instruction. And so John doesn't leave us with a bare command. He keeps arguing, he keeps instructing, because he knows that we need more, and so we can take a second step together, and we find the second step in the totality of verses 7 and 8. We've got the command at the beginning of verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. And then John keeps arguing. He keeps teaching. He says, For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so we're getting some help here from John. Love for him is not some free-floating idea. It's not some concept or some emotional thing that we can make out to be whatever we want it to be. Look at verses 7 and 8. What is John doing? Well, he's explicitly linking love to God. According to John, love has a definite source. He says in this text, love is from God. He tells us that love is not naturally occurring in humanity. He says, whoever whoever loves has been born of God. We see that love is a completely dependent reality. He writes, anyone who does not love does not know God. Even more, and this is John's most staggering claim, love is bound up in a person. He says, God is love. And these links that John makes between love and God mean something, mean something quite remarkable for us. To understand love, we don't need to turn inward and start assessing ourselves. This isn't a journey on the sentimental life. This isn't a call to go and take a, a broad survey of humanity to figure out what love is. It means, rather frankly, if we want to understand love, we have to go to God and consider Him. Love, first and foremost, is a theological task of understanding who the God of the Scriptures is. Love is from God. God is love. And what going to God does is it frees us from error and confusion 
And so what John does in these two verses in this step is he bids us to go to the God of the Scriptures and search him and see him for who he is so that we might both understand him and understand love. And so we can do this. And so with this knowledge that John gives us in verse 7 and verse 8, we go to the Scriptures. So we open up our Bibles and we turn to the first page, Genesis chapter 1, and, and there we behold God and God has created everything. And what does John do? Well, he preaches in our ear, this God of creation, he is love. And then we keep turning the pages, we move on to later in Genesis, and there we find the flood. And behold, God is active there. And John begins to preach in our ears. He tells us, the God who blotted out every living thing, the God who mourned over sin, the God who saved Noah and his family, this God, he is love. And we, we keep moving on in the story. We come to the, the Exodus story, and there we find Pharaoh destroyed. We find Israel set free. And John preaches in our ears. He says, do you see it? This God of salvation and almighty power, he is love. And we keep going on in the scriptures. We come to the opening chapters of Isaiah, and, and Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, and he hears the chants of the seraphim. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And John preaches in our ears and he says, do you see it? The Holy One of Israel, this God is love. And you see what happens to our understanding of love. When we ground our understanding of love in God, the result is that both our understanding of God and our understanding of love grow and they get clearer and fuller and purer. God the creator is love. God the just judge is love. God the redeemer and savior is love. God the holy one of Israel's love. Even more, God's love is a holy love and a righteous love and omnipotent love and a love that saves and rescues humanity from sin. And so John helps us. He's grounding love and this command in God himself. Love is from God. God is love. And now we can take our third step and in the third step, all that John has said comes together with stunning clarity. So take the step with me. Verse 9, verse 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's quite clear what John is doing in these two verses. He's taking us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And in these two verses, he won't let us look away from the cross of Jesus Christ. And so our imaginations turn on and we're reminded of what happened at the cross. We're reminded of the shame and the mockery and the nails and the blood and the agony and ultimately the death of the beloved Son of God. And John wants us to think about this, but he, he presses us on as we consider the mockery and the nails and the blood and the agony. John opens up our eyes to theological reality. He says this, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in that simple sentence, John is tying absolutely everything together. We ask, well, how does a holy, righteous, and wise God love sinners? We ask, well, what does it look like when the God of creation, the God of Genesis chapter 1, Move towards love, towards his creation. What does it look like when the God of the flood takes action in love? What does it look like when the God of the Exodus and Isaiah's vision moves in love towards humanity? Well, John tells us it looks like this. It looks like the Son of God crucified. 
It looks like this, the Son of God satisfying the the justice of God by spilling his own innocent blood for unrighteous sinners. It looks like this, the Son of God shielding sinners from the just and holy wrath of God. It looks like this, the Son of God dead, but sinners alive. John is bringing it all together. He says, he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And as we follow along with John, clarity comes at the cross. Oh, brothers and sisters, love is not a sloppy, wet kiss. It's not a sentimental emotion that leaves you as a puddle on the ground. Love isn't a giant pat on the back that says you're okay as is. No, God's love meets this world how and where. It meets this world in the death of his beloved son. Dealing with the matters that matter the most, our sin and God's righteousness. And so... We see these six verses. They're carefully argued, and in them we see these three steps, and we take the steps with John. We've got the first step, and we we lift our leg, and we put it on. We get this command, beloved, let us love one another, and we get clarity. Here is our calling, Christians, love. And then we keep going with John. We take the second step, and he grounds this command in the reality of God, in this theological matter. Love is from God. God is love. And then he pushes us up even further so that we might see how it all comes together, and we reach the third step, and we behold the love of God at work for humanity. He loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And so with all of this in front of us, reframing our vision, reordering our hearts, we can go back to how we began. Well, how do I relate? How do I relate to my neighbor, my friend, my family member? How do I do this? Well, from these verses, I want to give you a few principles. They're basic and simple, but I believe that they're really helpful. Principle number one, love coheres with the truth. Love coheres with the truth. And so we see it in this set of verses. In God's love, he never untethers himself from the truth. God sends his son, why? For sin. God is not untethering himself from the truth in his love. He is dealing with the truth. And so if we are to love as God loves, we must never untether ourselves from the truth. In fact, we can say we are not loving those of the rainbow flag, unless our love coheres with biblical truth. And so we ought to test ourselves as we apply this principle. We can just ask ourselves, is this true? We can put some skin on this, some meat on this. We can ask, well, do my actions cohere with the truth? Do my words promote the truth? Are my emotions in harmony with the truth? Or to put it another way, a negative way, do my actions disfigure the truth? Do my words confuse the truth? Do my emotions deny the truth? And when we think about these questions, they're really helpful as we enter into all these tricky situations we find ourselves in. You're at work, and here's the issues of pronouns. They're everywhere. It's odd. It's confusing. But what do we do? We go back to this principle. Love coheres with the truth. Is my mouth promoting the truth with what I say? If it's not, you're not loving. Or think about the matter of rainbow celebrations. It happens all over the place. You're supposed to have joy and celebrate all that's going on. We can just ask, well, what are my emotions doing? What are my actions doing? Do my actions cohere with the truth? 
Or are my actions disfiguring the truth? Or even the very matter of our entertainment, just the shows you watch at home while you're watching Netflix, the sitcoms, the the TV shows. Your emotions are doing something as you're taking in these shows and and all of the issues that are coming at you from from the rainbow flag. What are your emotions doing in there? Are they cohering with the truth? Are they in harmony with the truth? Or are they rebelling against the truth while you're taking in all of this? And so if we want to love as God would have us, our love must cohere always with the truth. Principle number two. Love is burdened with concern. Love is burdened with concern. Brothers, sisters, humanity's greatest problem is the wrath of God. And so if we are to love as God would have us, we must be supremely burdened and concerned with that very issue. Now this means something for us. It means that our burden is heavier than the the burden of the social conservative or the traditionalist. To put it in very concrete terms, our burden is heavier than Jordan Peterson's burden or Matt Walsh's burden or whatever pundit or news show you you watch or listen to. Our burden goes deeper. These men, these people are burdened about the state of culture, the state of family, and we care about those things. We, We preached on the family last Sunday, but our burden goes much deeper. What are we burdened about? We are burdened by the fact that God's wrath rests upon every unrepentant sinner. John chapter 3, verse 36. Our burden is that a great day of judgment fast approaches. Our burden is a lake of fire that exists. Our burden is a judgment seat with a most holy God presiding over it. We must be a deeply burdened people about that which matters the most. And so we can ask ourselves, as we're talking and chatting with others, especially those who identify and belong with the rainbow flag, are we burdened by that which matters the most? Are we burdened about the wrath of God and their plight in the midst of all of it? Or are we merely annoyed that our cultural sensibilities are disturbed, that the way of life has changed? What are we actually burdened about? And so if we are to love, we must be burdened with the greatest concern of all, the wrath of God. Principle number three, last principle. Love always offers help. Love always offers help. And so we go to the gospel, and in the gospel we find that God gives us the help that we need. We've read this verse multiple times now. He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. What does this mean for us? It means the only lasting and saving help we can offer anybody, especially those who belong to the LGBTQ plus community, is this, Christ himself. If we can go back to this hypothetical conversation, it's easy to get turned around and tied up and, and confused and lost when the pressure is on, but this is where we need to remember gospel basics. God loved us, and how did he love us? He loved us by sending his son for us and for our sins. We must love. And how do we love? We love most fundamentally by proclaiming the Son of God who came for us and for our sins. That's how we love in this world, by proclaiming the Christ who died and who lives. And so there's a test for us in this. Brother, sister, do you really believe in the sufficiency of Jesus? Do you really believe that Jesus, his person and work, really solves humanity's greatest problems? Do you believe that that God uses the simple preaching of the gospel 
That's what we've been doing this morning, isn't it? The simple preaching of the gospel that he uses it to bring sinners to himself. Do you believe that God, using the preaching of the gospel, can change hearts and minds and rescue sinners from the clutches of sin, slavery to sin, when they do not want to turn? That God uses the preaching of the gospel to change hearts and minds. And the glorious thing is, the preaching of the gospel does this. That's what's going on this morning. That's our hope. That's why we have gathered. We've been preaching and hearing the simple truths of the gospel. We've been reciting them to ourselves. God sent his son for us and our sins. And what's happening, God is using that very simple word to to change our hearts and our minds and to draw us towards him. And that's what happens when we go out. Everywhere we go and we proclaim this news, God uses this powerful word to change men and women. So principle number three, love offers help. And the only help we have to give, ultimately, is Christ himself. And so John has given us three steps to take. And we've walked those steps, climbed those steps. And we've got three principles to, to live with. And as we draw all of this to a close, the sermon to a close, this sermon series to a close, the reality is one sermon, three sermons can't address all of this. I'm aware of it. You're aware of it. We're aware that the situations we find ourselves in are numberless. The conversations we find ourselves in are numberless. And they seem to grow every day with a new set of scenarios and strange things that we encounter. But I want to end this whole sermon series on a note of confidence. Brother, sister, we rest upon God. We rest upon God. We rest upon his word and his grace. And we've come to learn in the gospel as we've read through the scriptures and redemptive history, God always meets his people where they are at. In difficult situations, in difficult conversations, what does God do? He meets his people where they are at with his word and his grace. And so, brother, sister, know this, believe this. In the gospel, you are entering into the world with the blessings of God upon your head. You have his word and you have his grace. We do not enter into this world as a defeated people. No, we enter this world as an optimistic people because God is with us and for us. And he is on the move in this broken world. So I want to conclude this series by just going through all the calls that we have made in it. And so we started with a very simple call in the first sermon. Hold fast to the Bible's teaching on sexuality. Don't let go of it. Don't do it. It's true. And not only is it true, it's good. It will make you happy. Second, build a home. How do we fight the war? How do we keep the faith? We start with the small things in our lives. We build families for the glory of God. So do it, and do it with diligence. And third, our last call, go out and love those who belong to the flag. Meet the world as God has met the world in the gospel of his son. Love and love in such a way that coheres with the truth. Love and love in such a way that is deeply burdened about that which matters the most, the wrath of God. Love and love in such a way that actually helps sinners by bringing them one way or another to the crucified Messiah who forgives sins and who is raised up and lives for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice that you are a God who meets us where we're at. And so we pray, meet us now 
With your grace, we have received your word. Now pour out your grace upon us that we might live faithfully and righteously in this age. Help us that we might cling to the Bible's teaching. Help us that we might build homes. Help us that we might go out and love as you have called us to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.